0: Many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email on LinkedIn or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Today, we'll be discussing Achieving Successful Program Execution, a Research-Based Approach with my guest, Jim Johnson. Jim Johnson is a founder and chairman of the Standish Group. He's been involved in the computer industry for over 50 years. He's authored 12 books, numerous articles on technology, project management, and emotional maturity with his best known work being the annual chaos report, which analyzes statistical trends on the success and failure of software projects. Jim is a professor at the Antwerp Management School. He has originated several economic laws and theories such as the law of the empty chair and decision latency theory. We'll be talking about latency a little later. Jim is currently working on a new methodology called infinite flow for developing and implementing software without using project management. You can contact Jim at, on LinkedIn by email at jim at standishgroup.com or at his website, standishgroup.com. So welcome, Jim. Did I get the background right?
2: Hey, it did very well. Uh, <laughs> I feel old when you say 50 years. So. Yeah, really. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit more. I just want
1: to fill in any more blanks in your background that I, I might have missed. Uh, so one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is how you got started in the research area. And, and uh, also, if I missed anything in your background, you can help me fill those in.
2: Well, you know, I started in the IT industry back in high school when I was invited to join the EAM room, the electronic accounting machine, where I worked on 403s. And then I went and became a computer operator while going to school and uh, worked at digital for a while, digital equipment, a long time, and um, so I got into uh into the research area through um uh several years ago by starting a company that was doing m a work actually um i had a friends that i was selling companies for people uh, on the Mm -hmm. side people would come to me with advice how do i get my company ready for sale and so i got involved in that and that's how we actually started and then I uh, I happened to meet somebody from IBM and said they needed some research on transaction processing and uh, high availability systems. And so I got involved that way and I started doing research. And uh, so we did that for several years. I, I was part of a, a symposium that looked at high transaction systems for a number of years, working with a guy named Jim Gray, Dr. Jim Gray, who came out of... Uh, IBM and uh, work with Dr. Codd and in a database. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's how I get started. Okay, and um, can you give us a little background on Standish Group, your company? Well, Standish Group started, like I say, Standish Group started out in M and A work and and uh, working with companies. Then pivoted uh, a couple of years later to doing the research, and we did general research in IT. We spent a lot of time in transaction processing high mm. availability. And so we, we specialed in, on failure. Why did systems break? What was causing them to break? And we found that uh, we could uh, narrow that down and, and find the root cause of, um, of why systems were breaking and why applications mm. could break. And then I happened to be teaching a course in, for IBM in uh, Belgium, and I came across this phenomenon uh, of project failure, and I wasn't really familiar with it at the time. And but some of our research was was coming out uh, kind of cockeyed because uh, we would um, we would project the the. Um, the uptake of certain software, especially in the transaction business, on looking at the number of uh, development licenses sold and then projected that out for, for the number of um, uh, runtime licenses. And that was coming out wrong. And so we said, why is it coming out wrong? And we discovered that there were a lot of project failures. So we, we hadn't put that into the research.
1: Oh, okay. So, that 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 led you to uh, doing more research in that area, uh, which which leads us to the, the next conversation topic is the chaos report. Can you uh, tell us what that is?
2: So, we started, you know, like I said, we were looking at root causes of failure and we said, okay, let's look at the root cause of why software projects were failing. Um, and that turned into a 25-year quest because um, we... Every time we looked at something and said, okay, this is the answer, that wasn't the answer. So, um, so we kept looking, uh, producing the chaos report, doing, doing traditional work. We started out uh, in sort of doing, you know, uh, merchandise uh, research in terms of the focus. So we'd do like interviews of uh, some IT people and uh, CIOs and CTOs and people like that. Then we'd do uh, some focus groups and we'd, uh, we'd, we ran focus groups for many years. And then we'd do uh, some broad-based surveys. And we did that probably for the first 10 years of the report. Um, uh, so that's, that was our um, modus. And then we found out that wasn't really the right way to do it. We really had to dig down deeper. So about 15 years ago, we started uh, developing project profiles. Which um, profiled the project, and then we created some AI or expert systems actually uh, to try to figure out what was going on. So hmm. we had several uh, offshoots of that.
1: So, because this topic is on uh, project successes and failures and, and challenges, what how did how did you quantify a project when you did this research work, or how did the people that answered it quantify their projects a project?
2: Yeah, so the traditional definition um, of a project, maybe coming out of PMI, we did a lot of work with PMI in the early years. You know, it's a one-time endeavor uh, undertaken to accomplish a particular objective for specific cost and time. So that was sort of the general project thing, but that's very boring. And uh, so as I was thinking about this and thinking about some more, I think project is a bet. It's a gamble, it's a prediction. Okay, so as Yogi Berra once said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. So, you know, we think about it, a project is a prediction, it's a promise to do something, it's an investment. An investment in time, money, talent. And, um, and the investment and the promise is that you're going to produce something of value, of usefulness in the future. So, you know, when you think about that, you think, okay, what, if you're betting on something, what do you want to know? What do you want to look at? What are the ways you can increase the odds that you'll be a winner. And that's what we, we really started to focus on. What is gonna make you a winner? Now, I should tell you, we only focus on software, both development and implementation. We, we don't look at other things. And I should even narrow that down that we only really look at business applications. We've done some embedded systems and some stuff, but we're not gonna to go to Tesla and find out you know, from their internals, uh, how they create software for driving a car. So that's not part of our, our sort of mission.
1: Okay. So originally your research uh, with the chaos report broke things down into successful projects uh, challenge projects, or I'm not even sure challenge was in that first category, but I think, I, I think it became uh, fairly common that you had things broken into three categories, successful, challenged, and failed. So how did you quantify those uh, categories?
2: Well, um, we we originally took the PMI definition, uh, on time, on budget, uh, on target. That was our original uh, way we looked at it. And um, and we we actually started uh, originally calling instead of failed we called it impaired because it was much more PC um, and then we we were able to then transition it over to failed or when we published it we failed but when we did our research we wanted to you know say impaired and that seemed to get people engaged people don't like talking about this this is not a subject that people are relishing on and they. And before I even started this, they they basically it was taboo. They you know uh, uh, swept it under the rugs. Uh, they re- restated it, um, and that goes on a lot still. Uh, people will restate a project based on what they actually did versus what they promised to do. So, um,
1: yeah, so- I, I I've seen that where. Um- uh, management has sort of wiped out the entire layer of people involved and pretended it never happened and destroyed all the evidence, uh, that it ever existed. And, and then they go off the next year and start the same thing over again. Right. Um, so, uh, in terms of those measurement criteria, um, was failed meaning, uh, ultimately that it wasn't delivered. Is that a fair assessment?
2: It actually says that it has two axes there. One is, um, yeah, it was stopped. So it was oh. completely stopped and abandoned. Okay. The other one was it actually succeeded from a project point of view, but then no one used it.
1: Uh, okay. I've seen both of those many times. <laughs> <laughs> um. I was talking on one show about the, uh, the the system that somebody built, and then they couldn't figure out how to stick it into the architecture. And it's like, wouldn't you have thought about that first uh, to okay. do that? Uh, and then, then uh, challenge projects. What what are those? How are those different from failed?
2: Um, challenge when we first started out, it was very strict. You had to be on time, on budget, and on target, mm-hmm. and we had some mechanisms uh, to to work those through because you could have a little late or you didn't get everything Mm. done. So, so it was somewhat, um, uh, you know, flexible in that area. But uh, basically if if it was, you know, it was scheduled for a million dollars and cost $2 million. We said, that's, that's a challenge project. If you, you know, if you only get so much done and you promise so much more then we might have mark that down as a as a challenge project. Although we found later on that that was maybe better off that you didn't do all the things you said you were gonna do. Right, uh, right. And, and so we we kind of took that away um, later on. So, but it originally was on time, on budget, on target. And then, you know, we said, wait a minute, what if it's on budget, but, it's late and and, so we started saying separating that. So we started looking at it in the three dimensions and say, okay. And then we could we actually able to segment. So we say we could say that um sixty percent of uh projects are on time. Maybe they're over budget and didn't get everything you want, but you know, sixty percent. And then we said we looked at, you know, on budget, so that became a separate thing. And then on target, it became a separate thing. So we actually could play around with that. And we actually created things like two out of three ain't bad, you know, mm. or, you know, if you got one, you were pretty good. Um, and so we started uh, publishing it that way. Mm. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I. so let's take a look at some of your stats that you had, and I know you did a 25 year report, a trend report. Uh, and in terms of, and, and I, I realize that you looked at uh, these numbers through a lot of different lenses, and and I don't want to underestimate or under understate the depth of of how you have looked at all these things. But I wanted to roll it up just for listeners. Um, I, I I recall that the numbers were something in the in, in terms of successful projects that they ran somewhere in the. Ballpark, depending on how you look at it, one third or under category for a while, where the challenged coupled with the failed, if you roll those together, look like they were again ballpark in the two thirds category. I realize that that shifted back and forth over the over the years. Is that is that a fair generalization?
2: Yeah, you know, it's if you use the depending on what you use, we we mm-hmm. we change things up a little bit. Uh, recently, and we we wanted to use more of a modern version uh, because we wanted to get away from target because we felt that actually if people did less, but they but those things they did was more valuable. But that probably is a good thing. So we sort of moved target away and, and called it satisfied customer. Okay. So our, so um, so that was our modern version, which is on time on on. Uh, on 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 uh budget and uh with a satisfied customer and then we had a range of satisfaction so it could be very satisfied somewhat satisfied then we can break that down even further.
1: So your surveys touched uh to talk to the people or surveyed the people that were the recipients of the work that was being done the people out in the business, the rank and file folks out there.
2: Yeah, we like to call them spies 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 okay (laughs) um well we have two types we have customers that do benchmarks so those uh, who pay us to to come in so we like that and then we want to make sure we have a a broader uh, constituency so we try to break it down about 50 50. Mm -hmm. the 50 that we that pay us actually pay the 50 people we don't so that we don't that we have to pay. so Um, so, uh, so, so we get a sort of a broad spectrum that's important
1: for us. My experience is when you go out and, um, that's an interesting sort of breakdown. I always try to make sure I get at least 50% of the people that are in the business. And I, I oftentimes hear different stories from people who are out there on the other end of things, dealing with, uh, the real business world. Uh, users of the systems, but not the builders of the systems. And so I I oftentimes hear different stories from them that I hear uh, a lot of times from the people in technology who are actually either building or supporting uh, the systems. And
2: and did you run into some of that? Uh, This is a really funny story. Uh, Like I said, we were doing focus groups. And early on, we said, "Let's, let's listen from different constituencies, so if looking from the CIO. So we, we invited, uh, we had teams so we, where we had the CIO, the CFO, or a financial person and a project manager. And so we went around the table and had them write down, was this a successful project, failed project or a um, challenge project. So, um, so the first time we went around, uh, we had different views where now, the CIO would say it's, uh, it's a challenge project. The, uh, the financial guy would say it's a failed project. And the, and the uh, project manager would say it's a successful project. And, um, and so we went around that and said, okay, how do we measure this now? Let's, and, and we talked a little bit. We talked it out. So we went back around again and said, you know, what are your feelings now? And we get the complete opposite. Um, so, you know, it, we found then we couldn't rely on, uh, on people telling us the truth uh, because you could have – it's just a different perspective. So we needed, to, that, we needed to go to a different model, and that's where we created the spies and uh, adjudicators. Adjudicator is a person that actually looks at the data, the profiles, and makes a determination got it
1: uh, we're gonna take a, a, a quick break here you're listening to the North Star I'm William Ulrich we're discussing achieving successful program execution with my guest Jim Johnson. Jim's latest book is decision latency a part of the chaos series the chaos report series and you can contact him on LinkedIn by email or his website. We'll be right back after a short break
0: become our friend on Facebook Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com.
2: Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM business. Again, that's at Voice AM business, And stay current. Your
0: organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. When it
1: comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to Ulrich at com. That's Ulrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich.
1: Welcome back to the North Star, I'm William Mulrick. You can reach me on LinkedIn by email or at my website. We're discussing achieving successful program execution with my guest, Jim Johnson. You can find links to the content we're referencing today on my website's radio show page. If you go to tacticalstrategygroup.com and just look for the North Star radio page. I wanted to ask Jim, uh, we were talking about the um, different criteria for, for measuring success and failure on projects. I wanted to ask is because as time went on you got into value-based
2: criteria can you talk a little bit about that jim well when we looked at our first criteria on time on budget and on target or with a satisfied customer that was more of a project management criteria it didn't really spell out whether you got a return on investment and like i said my my new theory is that you have to produce something of value Uh, so we started looking at that probably, uh, it takes us a while to put a new criteria. It takes us 10 years at least because we do about 5,000 projects a year. So we probably looked started looking at value about uh, 15 years ago. When we started measuring value, and we actually had created this um, uh, product called Optimix, which you used... Um, trying to convert uh, logical constraints into linear constraints to measure value. So we patented that, actually. So that's part of our toolkit. Anyways, so we wanted to look at value, and we we found that doing it precisely, you know, uh, is very difficult and very time-consuming. And we found that people will spend a lot of time, uh, months even sometimes, on uh, creating an ROI you know justifying the project okay and um especially the bigger the company the more time they take to, to justify it and we also found out that um, they didn't do a good job of uh, looking after the project what happened after the project in terms of did they get the return on investment in fact most people ignore um so we wanted to create a mechanism uh to say, okay, yeah, we got value. And so we created a, a ranking mechanism, you know, and, and we wanted to, them to rank it before they did the project, not to the so, project. So we came up with a five point scale from highly valuable to, you know, we didn't get anything from it. Um, and, and so we used that uh, as a criteria and that's, we do the same thing with customer satisfaction. So we have a scale of one to five on that as well, and so we could look at it from a scale point of view, and and then uh, be able to measure it a lot easier. And when we created our Optimix tool, we used those scales. So, um, yeah, are you going to get a lot of value from this particular endeavor, project or, or feature? Are you going to? Um, is it a you know? Is it something that you don't think is going to get a lot? Well, why do it? You know, and so we. We wanted people to start putting value either on the project or on, the, on a on a segment of the project or a feature of the project so that they could then say, "Okay, let's do these things first either a project or a set of features within a project and so that we could see to get more value and, and this is hard for people because people were used to really like to go out and Sort of boil the ocean with these, you know, requirements, and build stacks of requirements, and then try to build them all, and then then they get into trouble. So we wanted to, when we talk about, you know, risk, we want to narrow the 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 time down because the smaller you can create something, the more value you're going to get out of it, and the more likely you'll be in in the uh, the now because. What what you know now is 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 something you need now, and where a project is something about the future. So you have to be able to predict what you're going to need in the future. But if you can narrow it down to just a very small segment, and we keep working on that narrowness, and now we got it down to we call them micro projects. Now they're called microservices, but we can narrow it down so that you can create something and then get value very quickly.
1: So over 25 years and we are going to talk about latency theory but um, over a 25 year window and and knowing that there were some some shifts in what you were measuring and how you were looking at things there was a uh, the 25 year trend that that I looked at when I was looking at some of your research work was that there hadn't been a dramatic improvement in success uh, over that window of time and was I reading that that right
2: it hasn't changed a lot. It's just the what the makeup of it has changed. Okay, mm-hmm. and one of the problems we're having now, and uh, we just did a paper called "Endless Modernization. We we tried to look at the the smallest project, but you know, every time you look at a, something smaller, it gets harder to look at. So 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 we see that microservices. You know, it's, you can see Uber and and other mm-hmm. people. Using microservices very successfully. Now those are only like they could do two or three microservices in a day. You know, so it be, it becomes more of a task than a project. Mm-hmm. So so those are how to look at. So as people started using that technique, the project got smaller and smaller. We got a narrower and narrower band of projects we could actually look at.
1: Mm. Um, okay. So let's talk about latency theory. You, you, you talked about uh, the, uh, delays, and, and that starts at the beginning. And, of course, it runs through the life of any particular effort you're investing in. Uh, can you talk about decision latency theory? What's the premise behind that?
2: Okay. So the uh, what the decision latency theory says is the value of the interval, which is the time between when an uh, issue comes about and when you close it, is higher quality than the value of the decision what that means is that if you you can make a mistake but if you do it if you make the decision quickly you can recover much easier from that mistake so and then we looked at all kinds of ways we actually created a tool called the decider and in the decider we did benchmarks on decision latency and we well, and then we applied that to projects, and as we did that, we we uh, we saw that if a pro- if a decision, if the average decision could be made in one hour, then you had a good chance of success. Where if it was five hours, you had a good chance that you were going to make it. And and so we started thinking about how you might change the dynamics of decision-making, okay? And we're going to talk about the good sponsor in a, in a little while, but we found that the, the good sponsor shouldn't make any decisions. It, it's better off if they don't make decisions and they move decisions down to the team, the delivery team, and maybe some... Uh, uh, technical people that would know the decisions. And one of the problems we have is we have a lot of people making decisions but don't know what they're doing. And so they're very hesitant to, to make the decision. So we really want to move the decision down to people that actually know what they're doing. And we found this is, a, is a, and so if you, you have a team, especially like a scrum team, and this is one of the other things we found that we found that scrum teams make decisions quickly and that's why they have more success. So, so then we started looking we collected like 300 different reasons why projects either fail or succeed and something And we could tie those things back to decision latency, you know, and and we saw some really bad decision latency. We saw one one team that spent 12 weeks, couldn't move because an uh, executive couldn't make a decision. Um, we saw that in the city of Boston. Actually. It actually took six months before, and people were doing busy work because they didn't want to. They they wanted to get paid, so they had to do something. (laughs) Um, So, so we see this, and then when we look at it, we say, "Okay, if you can, you know, if you as a sponsor can tell your team how you would make a decision, and then you could give them feedback on decisions they make, then you could improve the decision process and the latency at the same time."
1: Okay, so. uh people that may not be familiar with large organizational structure infrastructures may be sort of scratching their heads here but um, I know exactly what you're saying because uh, I have been involved in those situations waiting and waiting and and you know people put reports up saying on hold can't do anything until we get this decision coming down right from the top so uh, I, I think the the whole idea behind this and and there's cultural pushback on on addressing latency is that is that fair?
2: Yeah, we got a lot of pushback on it. We got a lot of people saying, "No, that's not true." You know, we got. Um, <laughs> but as we we started, look. In fact, we were very fearful of publishing that paper in uh, two thousand and eighteen. We had been looking at decision latency for. Well, we wrote it back in two thousand and ten in the uh, chaos report in two thousand and ten uh, about quick decisions, and we had been doing work many work many months before that. In fact, years. So we knew that this was a, a very uh, controversial thing to talk about because um, people think that they know how to do things and make decisions, and we find right. that they just don't.
1: I, I want to just get back to one item on success criteria. Uh, you had previously used uh, having clear business objectives as, as a success factor, uh, and, and you know, there's there's – both the um, older established schools of uh, having um, using strategy maps to create a, a, a structure of a, a hierarchy of objectives you can work from, uh, or uh, OKRs, uh, you know, uh, ob- objectives and key results. So, so those are management trends, but you would remove clear business objectives as a, as a factor in measuring success at some point. Can, can you uh, talk about why that was dropped?
2: Well, what we saw, and, and you know, certainly, uh, I'm, a, I'm a very fond, uh, friend, uh, uh, I like John Doerr, and, you know, and certainly, you know, key objectives is important. But what we saw is when we looked at from a value point of view, that the more vague the project, the higher value it actually, it was a discovery point of view. And what people... What we found from the project management industrial complex is you started with this clear objective, but then as you move forward, you tried to keep that objective in mind when things actually change. And then we talk about time, especially a big project. You know, Big projects start with a clear objective, but the business changes, the people changes, and the environment is is much more complex than trying to come up with this sanitized version of the objectives, because, for instance, the city of Amsterdam has this vision that's called uh, one city. Well, one city to people who are working in the social security area is much different than people that are, you know, fixing roads and, and bridges. So... You know, so this whole idea of a of, of a of a strategy that is good for everybody doesn't take in the fact that the different constituencies are actually needed look at it differently. So the one vision, how does the tax department look at the one city versus you know the other departments is much different. So we think that from a strategic point of view, you actually wanna have a vision, but be able to let the different business units apply that vision to their own uh, organization.
1: Uh, right, which which still could manifest in more of a distributed structure of objectives that are sort of integrated under a vision. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah, and we think that's the way to go. We actually are okay. gonna be talking about that in the infinite flow. Okay.
1: So uh, let's talk about, uh, let, let's try to get into uh, uh, a, a little bit more of that. But uh, before, I, before I jump over to that, uh, I wanted to ask, um, w- one thing I talked about in my first episode was the issue of executives trying to set sort of the vision where they want to go. And because a lot of times that's going to span a lot of organizational structures and you want them to uh, obviously coordinate and collaborate. But a lot of times, a lot of that work is then, uh, if you're lucky, uh, they're all trying to work towards the same effort. Or what I've seen oftentimes is you have a lot of independent business units setting their own direction. And if you look across all those independent business units, those directions are Uh, in conflict or uh, not well aligned, or if this group succeeds, that group will guarantee to fail and vice versa. So we hand these down then to execution teams. That's sort of the natural trickle effect, especially a lot of these groups have their own money. They don't have to ask permission, right? They can just fund it. So now we've got these teams working and they could be working at cross purposes with each other. So have you seen uh, any insights into what's happening uh, in terms of upstream uh sort of splintering of of uh uh you know goals that that aren't aligned effectively or they're misaligned or or
2: over, overlapping or conflicting even well we certainly see that a lot actually though mm-hmm. so that's that's not unheard of and uh and when the bigger the project is, we see that there's a lot of conflict uh, in fact. A friend of mine, uh, Dion Carterman, wrote this book called *The Project Saboteur*. Mm. And what you see is, you know, you do see different organizations compete against different organizations. So in fact, that was a trend of IBM, you know, when mm. they had groups. Um, and so, uh, so, so, we think the best thing to do, in the strategy point of view, is create the vision, but then let the people on the front line. Uh, execute the vision okay. and, and not try to create a homogeneous vi- product or service. Okay.
1: All right. So uh, we're going to um, just take a, uh, another quick break here. As soon as we get back, we'll jump into the, the good sponsor, the good mate. And I do want to talk about the infinite flow uh, methodology. So make sure we, uh, we manage our time accordingly. Uh, you're listening to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing achieving successful program execution with my guest, Jim Johnson. Jim's latest book is Decision Latency Theory, part of the Chaos Report Series. Uh, you can contact Jim by LinkedIn, by email, or at StandishGroup.com. We'll be right back after a short break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? tactical strategy group's william ulrich has seen every side of this story from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems find out what's really going on visit tacticalstrategygroup.com group.com and ask about tsg's transformation oversight service voice america programs are now available
2: on your favorite connected device Including Amazon Alexa and Google Home through streams with Apple Podcasts, tune in at iHeartRadio. Listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts.
0: Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six-, seven-, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? tactical strategy group's william ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable successful investments for more information visit our website at tactical when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's Ulrich at com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich.
1: Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing Achieving Successful Program Execution with my guest, Jim Johnson. Uh, Jim, I wanted to move the discussion over to talk about the uh, winning hand, which uh, of which part of that is the good sponsor and the good mate. Can you uh, tell us about that?
2: Yeah, that was uh, we published that in 2016. Um, and we saw that if you had the combination of these five things, which is, you know, you're doing an agile project like Scrum, they Scrum, had a good sponsor, which Scrum doesn't really talk about, but they do talk and have a thing called a Product owner, um, and you had people that uh, had the skills in agile and the methods, but you also had a team that was emotionally m- mature, and we had done a lot of work in emotional maturity. Uh, we wrote a research report on that, and we found that teams that you know basically uh, spent a lot of time on the present. And I, I, you know, I get back to this thing: a project is the future. But the closer you, you are to the present, you you uh, you have a better handle on things. And we wanted people to be technically skilled so they could actually do the job. You know, you, if you're doing a database uh, project, you don't you want to have somebody that knows databases. It's kind of important. So uh, so that was our winning hand. And then when we started the, it sort of gave us after doing that, it gave us the the courage, I should say, to talk about decision latency. And that was uh, in 2018. So we think, th- and the thing, if you apply these and you have good skills in those five areas, you can have almost a, an 80, 80%, eighty almost a 90% chance of success because, but you have to, they have to be skilled in all those areas. and um, And so when we think about a bet, and we're talking about a project is something that will be developed to be delivered in the future. Um, We look at these things and we can say, these people can make decisions quickly. They can get a product in the hands of a user to get feedback quickly. They can, they can appreciate the feedback to be able to do a better job the next time. And, um, and so this winning hand we think is a, is a good uh, uh, metric to, to think about as we go forward. And um, and so what we do think that the real, one of the real keys is the, the, is the uh, project sponsor. And we wrote a book on it called uh, The Good Sponsor. And and we want, what we really want the sponsor to do is we want the sponsor to be a, inspire people. We want them to inspire the people we want them to project to the team. We want them to give the decisions to the team because they're better off doing the decisions. And we also want them to have some imagination. You know, there's so much imagination go, can go a long way. So we want the, we want the project, those project sponsor to be able to daydream. We think that's a really important skill for the sponsor. And we don't want them to sort of micromanage. Uh, we we want them to know the process and, and drive people to doing a good job. We want to make sure they celebrate with people. We want them to be able to, again, inspire, nurture, protect. And when we're looking at a project, we have to look at the outside of the project, the stakeholders and the users and stuff like that. And we want the project person to be politically in the sense that they'll go out and and, and talk up the project.
1: So the, the winning hand, just so uh, everybody's clear on it, I know it's got the good sponsor, the good mate, emotional maturity for the team, which is really a good one, uh, and the good technical skills. And and what was what was the last one? I just wanna make sure everybody's aware oh, of that. You,
2: you had an agile process, you didn't have- Yeah, agile
1: process, got it, okay and then you talk about the uh, you also talked about the uh, it's part of the winning hand the good mate yeah so who's the good mate
2: so we wrote the, the good mate book um, with a with a colleague who was a marriage counselor hmm. and, and we, we used the there's a guy in Seattle his name is Gottman John Gottman and he's spent 40 years um, working with uh, married people, and he could, he says he can tell uh, in eighteen seconds whether they're going to stay together, uh, uh, which is a quite a interesting. So we, I, I, I hope I never
1: run into him with my wife. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, he has the Godman theory. It's it's pretty interesting guy, um, and I had been doing twenty five years of research. What we found out early on was that it's really people that cause a project to succeed or fail. And so we, from the very beginning, while we didn't know it, we were looking at emotional maturity and looking at the things on um, maturity level. And so um, we took his theories and we took our theories and we said, okay, instead of a marriage, <clears throat> a team is like a marriage. It has to work together. It has the same Uh, dynamics as a good marriage so having a good team and what we wrote the book on is how you as a person because it's first person can be a good mate and things like influence and uh, working on problems and making decisions collaboration and and being you know basically a good Good made how to solve, because there's going to be issues, how to solve those intractable issues that come up. So we we, we we created the book to give people tools, so if you're on a team, you could read the book. And we have, actually have some workshops we were doing, we were recommending that people do, so that they become more mature in that area. Hmm.
1: Okay, and and then uh, a lot of this has led then into your uh, newer methodology called infinite flow. Can you talk to us about the infinite flow methodology?
2: Okay, so the infinite flow is an anti-project methodology. So we're not doing projects with infinite flow. Remember I talked about being in the present. So the infinite flow method is you you do things that – are Needed now, and you deliver them now, and so you have this. This um, you only count what's delivered. So you get rid of get rid of all the project stuff, steering committees, project tools, uh, project managers, all that, in, that industrial complex. You throw it away, and you create a small team. And we say we have two we call two product owners or what we call producers, and you have a small team of four people, and you put that into a business unit. So I know that a lot of CIOs and IT people hate shadow IT, but what you're creating is a massive shadow IT. In other words, you're giving the, the, the tools and methods to the business. Unit. And the sponsor of that team is the person involved in the business. And the thing is, you do something every single day. So the producers produce something that the team can do tomorrow. And they do it in one day, and they deliver it, and they get feedback from the, from the people. They get feedback from the, the sponsor. Is this what you wanted? Is this what we did right? If users see it. Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? Is it valuable? Is it, are you satisfied with it? All of that happens in one day. And like you know, you might think of a micro project or a micro service. You you basically embed the team into the business, and so you have a good sponsor, a good team. We train the team, train the sponsor. You have uh, you only counting. You're not counting a bunch of stuff that doesn't really matter you know we in the project community you you try to measure every single thing in this you only say did you get did you get the project done and was it value or the task of the day and then you measure that and that's the only thing you measure Even if you say no well now I have to figure out how to make sure I get the task. what do i have did I feed him too much stuff to do did I, you know but I feed them to less, So that that takes some time to do But every day you're going to get something and you might throw it away. It might not be valuable, but you'll have a learning lesson. And, um, and so that's the, the infinite flow. One
1: of the things that I get feedback on from a lot of uh, IT uh, people in the rank and file in, in IT organizations is that uh, they're always working on some short-term thing to, to get something done quickly. And they admittedly are saying that they are piling on technical debt on top of technical debt because they, they can't take a step back and, and look architecturally at what they keep building on top of, right? So they've got this, this sort of kludgy house that they keep uh, remodeling, but they keep building more stuff on top of it. And it's, 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 it's getting wobbly, right? So how does that, how does this sort of concept sort of fit into uh, addressing sort of those bigger architectural issues?
2: Okay, so one of the things is you have to have an enterprise architecture. So you start out with an enterprise architecture. That's one of the skills and tenets of it. You also start out with a couple of things that we think is really important. One is normalized systems. What is normalized systems? Normalized systems is a way of creating things and products and, and services that separate concerns. So you don't have to worry about integrating with somebody else. You just do what you have to do. And the normalized systems will take care of that. Okay. okay. The third thing is that you want to really do is create a digital twin. So you're not attacking the main house. The elephant is still the elephant. And you can allow IT to actually fix the elephant. So it's not piling on. You're actually taking things away. Ah, OK. Uh, I,
1: I, I started, started envisioning it now, right? So um, I was at one organization, we call those quick win teams. Now, they, they, did, they did have plans to reintegrate back to the back-end architecture, and they did follow architectural principles, right? But they were delivering things that were making, that were valuable, uh, at least at some level, to the business people. Is that fair?
2: Yeah. In fact, you know, IT kind of does this thing where they want to, they want to satisfy everyone and they end up satisfying no one, right? Because, because they're doing, you know, everything to everybody.
1: Well, we, we certainly see that, and absolutely agree. So, so yeah, so I do see this that this can fit into uh, a, a a bigger picture strategy where uh, there is con- there is a bigger transformational thinking going on at some level. Um, I want to ask you what what areas you're looking forward into in terms of Standish Group and some of the research ideas that you've got going going
2: forward. Well, we're, this infinite flow is a is a fairly dynamic um, process. We're sort of stopped on the project. We did it for 25 years. We published mm-hmm. the 2020 report, and we're going to be updating out a little bit uh, in the coming months. But um, we're really thinking that after 25 years, looking at why things happen and changing the culture. See, the infinite flow is not just a, way, a method, it's actually a culture change because we're, if, if the organization wants to create a new strategy or a new vision, they, they, it takes years to implement that. With the infinite flow, if you have a network of infinite flow people with all, in the businesses, and they and you and board has a new strategy. They can start the next day because they know the strategy. And then as their tasks come up, they can they can monitor that by the strategy. Does this meet the new strategy? Or should we do it if it doesn't? So so you can start to see the strategy move by by not trying to to change you know everything at once. You you change these things one day at a time.
1: So good thinking. Uh I do like that. I think I might have to bring you back to talk some more about this. Uh, we are, are at the end of our show. My guest today has been Jim Johnson of Standish Group. We've been discussing achieving successful program execution. You can contact Jim at his email at jim at Standishgroup.com or at his website, standishgroup.com. You can find links to all the material Jim is referencing today on my radio, uh, North Star Radio page on my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Uh, thanks, Jim, for sharing your insights with us today. Uh, My guest next week, will my guest will be Sim Siegel and Jim Gilligan will be discussing enterprise risk management. You've been listening to The North Star. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You can contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my, my website. Thanks for joining me today, and I'll talk to you all next week.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to The North Star. Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then.